This week's sponsor has a product I can literally use every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to support my meat-free diet with important vitamins and minerals. Athletic Greens is made entirely from plants and has 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to make sure I'm getting everything I need. This special blend of ingredients supports my lifestyle and fits into vegetarian, gluten-free, paleo, keto, and other routines. It's lifestyle-friendly and keeps me in 2020. Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now, it's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million supplements and pills. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. The Utmost Island, Chapter 12 Would Odin's ravens, Hugin and Noonan, perched on his shoulders and told him the ship had left, the Allfather was seen to give one of his rare smiles. This was the first favorable news he had heard since it became known that the death of all the gods was near. The sorrow that filled him came not from the approaching doom, but from the approaching ingratitude. This green and growing world, which they had so painfully made out of the body of an ice giant, would go on without them into other times, unremembering and uncaring. The gods would have known they were soon to die, even if it had not been foretold, by the great number of people who were willing to stop believing in them. The blood in a god's veins was nothing but the faith that was placed in them by people. If the faith died, so did the gods. But they never let the people know their power, pretending to them that it was the faith that they kept the believers alive. The result, however, could not be changed. No faith, no gods. So out of pure self-preservation, they encouraged those who did believe in them, performing miracles in their behalf, or at least natural prodigies that could be mistaken for miracles, such as rainfall after there has been a drought, or a breeze after a ship has been becalmed. In the present case, Odin was particularly anxious to help his servant, the Sea King. So he granted his deepest wish. He conferred on his son Eric a strange kind of memory, by which he would never forget anything his father had taught him. In addition, he made the wind so favorable and the sky so clear that the ship found its way easily into the current that flows forever westward. The travelers were especially glad, when they were out of sight of land, to find that Ajir had decided to be friendly. They could never be sure about him. 
Standing on the shore and feeling safe while he cajoled them was not the same as being in his arms and at the mercy of his whims, though both were ways of finding out what he was like. There was a third way, too, to be washed overboard when he was in one of his stormy moods. Then the seafarer found that he'd fallen into Ajir's mouth and was being swallowed. The few who were hauled back out of those dreadful jaws were terribly shaken by the experience and full of fear afterwards. But when Ajir smiled, as he was smiling at Odin's behest, on this Greenland-bound ship, none could be a more delightful companion. He made these voyagers feel that they were his guests, under his protection, and filled them with such zest that they were eager to pay him more such visits. He even used one of his greatest spells. He made the land they had left seem further away than it was, thus loosening the hold of the troubles that concerned them there, even if they were the very troubles that had made them set sail. The brightness of where they were was greater than the sadness of what they were leaving. Furthermore, the brightness remained for them to look at, while the sadness moved further and further back. Turker helped Ajir cheer them by singing a little song of his native land. It was a way they had there of saying, out of sight, out of mind, and went something like this. Here and there are brothers. Here is my friend, there is not. For here stays near me, but there stays far away. They began to like Turker more than they had after that, and were readier to accept him as one of themselves, despite his being a thrall. They asked him for more songs of his country, and he sang them one about a famous king, Attil, after whom his own little boy was named. They had all heard of Attil under their Norse name for him, Atli. They'd heard, too, that there was a Christian prayer against him in Rome, where he was known as Attila, which said, From fire, pestilence, and the Hun, good Lord deliver us. Turker's song added a personal note to their ideas about Atl, and about Turker too, for the fire with which he sang it showed that he considered his legendary hero an example to himself. Attil the Great was a dwarf, less than four feet tall, Yet he built a pyramid a thousand feet high with the skulls of his enemies. Attil the Great was a dwarf, his head below other kings' belts, yet he made them bow so low before him that their heads were under his feet. Attil the Great was a dwarf, his bed was four feet long, yet his enemies are sleeping forever, and their bed is all of Europe. Attil the Great was a dwarf, half the size of a man, yet the fear he brought into the world lives longer than time itself. There had been little doubt about Turker's usefulness before that, because of his own short stature, but this helped banish it, along with the hearty way he did his part at the oars. The Sea King became well disposed towards him too, as toward a friend with the same grief as his own, who yet was helping make the trip easier. Thanks to Ajir's friendliness, and thanks a good deal 
to Turker. The first day passed bravely, even buoyantly, that otherwise might have been given over to tears, or what was worse, to manly suppression of tears. The second day, Ajir's favor continued. But since he was a giant as well as a god, there was a speck of hidden malice in his gifts. In this case, he was raising their spirits so high that they would become overly confident, ready to fall into traps that were always being planned in his crazy green mind. It is about 250 miles to Greenland. Three days will take a ship there, if only it has a reasonable wind, a sail, oars, a skillful helmsman, and a foolish desire to get there. One day was gone. There seemed no possible reason to have doubts, or take precautions, or feel any way except the way the ocean felt. It said, I am big. I am strong. I do as I please. Nothing can stop me. They had breathed so much of this breath that they felt that way about themselves. The men shook their fists in the direction of Norway and defied Olaf in a strange, haunting redoing of what had happened in Ingolf's tomb. It disturbed the Sea King, who alone had no reason for wholeheartedness. The living are haunting the dead, he muttered. Are we only ghosts? He looked at the sun for an answer, and Ingolf's helmet, which he wore newly burnished, flashed so vividly that it can be seen today by us, to whom he is a ghost indeed. The defying of Olaf developed into a sort of boasting contest, in which the men vied with each other in saying that they would do anything they liked to him were he there, face to face with them, man to man. It would be my sword against his, said the first. And for a while I would let him think he was winning, but then I would use a certain trick which I learned from a troll, and overboard Olaf would go, down, down through the water, to be eaten by the fishes, who would cry out, Give us no more kings to eat who rule by divine right. We don't like the way they taste. There was great laughter at this, and the boaster rode with renewed energy, pleased with his success. Another spoke up, and everyone thought he outdid the first, not for how he said he would kill Olaf, but for what he would do with him afterwards. He would cut his head off and bury him, sitting on his own face. Then he would be ashamed to return as a ghost, because he would know how he looked to the rest of the world. The third and best boaster was Turker. He said he would insult Olaf if he got the chance. Now, an insult was a much worse injury to a man than killing him, and there was especially severe laws, telling how much of a fine you had to pay a man for each particular way you might insult him. The way Turker said he would insult Olaf must have been the most dreadful that existed, since its meaning is buried in such deep silence that there is no hope of rediscovering it. He said that if he ever saw Olaf, he would stick his tongue out at him. After that, there was no use in trying to make greater boasts. The game was over and had been won. In fact, it was felt that Turker had gone too far in saying such a thing with children aboard, and the men hid their embarrassment by a sudden, 
conscientious application to the oars. A small, awkward qualm like that could not bother them for long, while wind and current were with them, great distance being covered with little effort, and sky and water so beautiful. How, they perversely began asking themselves, can we make this delicious day pass more swiftly? There was a well-known way of accomplishing that, and both children and grown-ups alike liked nothing better. They all thought of it together during a silent moment and looked towards their seeking to grant what all were wishing. He did, because it was one of his duties. He announced he would tell a story. Having made the offer, he began to miss his son, who had been his best listener, and Turker gave a little sorrowful look to show he missed him too. But the Sea King had little time in which to think of his loss. He had to consider, very carefully, which tale should be told and how to go about it. Storytelling was a very difficult art. Old, familiar stories were wanted, not new ones, so the teller did not have novelty to help him hold the interest. Listeners got their pleasure from making sure that everything was told correctly and stood ready to protest the change of a single traditional word. What they did was memorize together, memory being their only library. The story he told was a favorite. It was about a giant named Jakul, who was named after the mountain range, or it after him, Jokul wanted some of the famous mead that the gods drank, so he climbed the mountain up to Asgard, where the gods live, but where Thor had sternly ordered all giants not to go. Jokul filled his pail from the magic udders of the she-goat that supplied the mead and was about to drink, when Thor saw him and gave him a stupendous kick that sent him whizzing back to the bottom of the mountain. Jokul broke his head as he landed, and when his sister Jill tried what he had tried, she was sent tumbling down after him. They still do it every night and day, for Jokul is the moon and Jill is the sun, and Thor is forever kicking them back into the ocean with the spilled mead all around them. Jokul really does break his crown, and on successive nights it can be seen that his head always has a different shape. When the story was ended, they all sang with great enthusiasm. Jokul and Jill went up the hill, and then called loudly for another. So he told them the story of Hamlet. The Hamlet he described was not a prince. He did come from Denmark, however, where he was the son of a free farmer. But he had no liking for wealth or possessions of any kind, which made him as popular with slaves as with bonders. He wanted only to live from day to day and induce others to do likewise. More grasping men could not endure his homely wisdom because it made them seem mean and base, so they consoled themselves by saying he was mad. He was content to let them say so, for it was always clear who was really mad. There was, for example, the incident of the runes. 
All the high and mighty ones were forever carving runes which told who their ancestors were. One day, when they saw Hamlet carving some meaningless scratches on a stone slab, they asked him, with mock seriousness, What do you carve? He replied, Runes! And this time they could not say he was mad, because it would have made them seem mad too. He was a greater hero than the conventional heroes with whom he matched wits, and everyone loved him because of his sly way of hinting that there might be something better than the accepted best. There were cries of, One more! One more! which no storyteller was ever allowed to resist, no matter what personal woes were on his mind. So the men rested on their oars and let Greenland wait while they heard a tale which had been told of many kings and earls, and lately was being told of Olaf. Last Yuletide, which Olaf and his followers were misusing to celebrate Christmas, and making the sign of the cross instead of the sign of the hammer, an old man entered the hall and seated himself on the bench that was kept for unexpected guests. He wore a broad-brimmed hat which he kept pulled down over his face, but his white beard bespoke years of wisdom. After he'd eaten, Olaf asked him what he could tell them that would add to their store of knowledge. The warriors, expecting sport, leaned forward to hear his answer. I can tell you three things, said the old man. The first is, why wolves have not come into this hall and eaten you. The second is, why serpents have not crawled into this hall and stung you. The third is, why death has not burst into this hall and seized you. I can answer that myself, cried Olaf. God and my sword throw all three at a distance. The old stranger smiled indulgently. You walked twenty-nine years upon this earth, he said, not always with a sword, and with other gods. Who protected you then? Olaf was abashed by this and silent, and the white beard went on. There was a time before this first sword was made, when wolves ruled Norway and feasted upon men as they willed. Their king who ruled over them as you rule over Norway's men, was named Fenris. He was a giant wolf with a giant's strength and jaws big enough to swallow all the men on earth. The gods planned to prevent that, so they taunted Fenris, saying he was not strong enough to break a chain. He accepted the wager and burst the chain with which they bound him. Chain after chain he burst in this manner, until they had made him vain. Then they had a magic chain made by the dwarves. It was made out of six things, a woman's beard, the noise of a cat's footsteps, a mountain's anchor, the shadow of the sun, a fish's breath, and a bird's spittle. This time Fenris suspected a trap and would not be bound with the chain until the god Tyr put his right hand in the wolf's mouth as a pledge to release him. Fenris could not break the chain, and the gods would not release him. In a rage, he bit off Tyr's right hand. But Fenris will never break that chain until the day of the last great battle, 
and his followers were all banished to the forest. Tyr's sword, which he could never wield again, was given to a man to protect himself, and all other swords were copied from it. The wolf no longer dares appear. All honor to the great god Tyr. At mention of a god he had deserted, Olaf tried to leap to his feet and slay the stranger, but he was in a spell and could not move, nor could his warriors. The white beard went on. Before Fenris was born, the world was ruled by serpents, who bit and poisoned men as they wished. Their king was a giant snake named Ormungundr, and he was Fenris's older brother. His jaws were so huge that he could swallow all men, living, dead, and yet unborn, and the gods planned how to prevent that. Now Ormungundr could not be slain because he lay around the whole world, holding it together with his tail in his mouth, and if he ever let go, it would all fly apart. So the strongest god, Thor, held the world together by wrapping one of his arms around it, while with his other hand, he tore Ormungundr loose and flung him into the deepest part of the ocean. He lies there now, with his tail in his mouth, holding the world together through fear of Thor. He will stay there until he comes forth for the last great battle, and his followers were all banished to pits and caves. The snakes shall rule you nevermore. All honor to the great god Thor. Again Olaf tried to rise and draw his sword, but the old man's first word froze him where he was. Death, he said, ruled the world before the wolf or snake, and was their elder sister. She had no followers, because where she walked, no one could live. Nothing bloomed, nothing bore, nothing breathed. Ice and darkness covered the earth. And the gods feared that life would never begin. Only Odin could deal with her. He made a bargain with her, by which she agreed to make her home in a dark place under the earth, and which she named Hell. She reigns there over the dead who do not go to Valhall, but they come to her only after they have had a share of life on earth. There she will remain until the last great battle. Odin's part of the bargain, by which he made her agree to this, was that he gave her his only son. By living men this earth is trod, all honor to the one-eyed god. Thereupon the stranger arose, and they saw that he had only one eye, and they knew then that this was Odin. The gods of Asgard, he said sternly, made it possible for you to enjoy this beautiful world. Now the day of the last great battle is at hand when wolf, snake, death, and all their hosts come forth, seeking to destroy the gods for what they did for you. It is not fitting, nor manly, that you should desert them now. With that, he strode from the hall in silent dignity. When they came to their senses and could move again, he was gone, although the gates were still locked from within, 
and the watchdogs had not barked. That was the end of the last story. For a while, no one spoke. Thinking about how much depended on them, they vowed silently not to fail in their duty. They would keep the gods alive, in one small corner of the world at least. If their silent resolve was heard in Valhal, it must have been a comfort amid great gloom, for on the next day the general thing was to meet in Iceland, which fate had decided would renounce the gods. Odin sent out Hugin and Munin, the one to watch the thing that would break his heart, the other to watch the ship that carried the last of his lifeblood. From his mountain peak, the All-Father looked down onto Hell with his single eye and saw Death preparing to come forth with her two monstrous brothers and all their followers, seeking revenge for their long banishment. Tomorrow it was coming, at last and for certain, the great battle, Ragnarok. All that the gods could do was to set an example in bravery to a world that no longer believed in them. So Odin summoned Heimdall, who could see the stars by day and hear the grass grow, and told him to blow his horn at the least alarm. Next, he ordered the gods and the dead heroes to be ready with their weapons and wield them with the knowledge that it was the last time. Throughout the night, Odin sat in his great chair. In his hand was one last hornful of the magic mead, and on the table before him was the severed head of the wisest of all dwarfs. He and it spoke together till morning about the world as they had known it. Thank you for listening. Please stay tuned to hear about another great podcast. You can find it and History Obscura on various social networks like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please consider supporting the show via buymeacoffee.com forward slash History Obscura or Patreon. And please do take another cookie before you leave. Aladdin will show you the way out. Good night. Hello, everybody. My name's Matt. I'm Brent. And we host ReviewParty.com. It's the only podcast that reviews internet reviews from Amazon, Yelp, Google, and all of the others. I think we got a little clip to share. Three toys were added to the Toy Hall of Fame.
the American Girl doll, Risk. That's my favorite board game. But the third toy added. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any guess? <laughs> the third toy added. Bop you will it. never get this. Uh, Bop it too. <laughs> it's sand. 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 Sand is a toy. <laughs> Quote, children recognize sand as a creative material suitable for pouring, scooping, sieving, and measuring. Wet sand is even better. <laughs> no one invented sand. I don't even know if God invented sand because sand's made from old rocks. This is true. I don't think the Garden of Eden had any sand in it. Yeah, those rocks were brand new, <laughs> fresh <laughs> off the shelf. Make a new rock. <laughs> You can find ReviewParty.com wherever you listen to podcasts. And at ReviewParty.com.com.